What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey guys, before we get into the show, I want to highlight that we are launching the first Smart People Podcast Mastermind webinar on March 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. The expert putting on that webinar is the man, Dave Burse. You may remember Dave from episode 174 when we talked about how to be creative. Companies pay him tons of money to either speak or consult them on how to be creative, but he is going to do it for Smart People Podcast for free. In this webinar, he will be teaching you six tips to make anyone more creative. So just go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash burse, that's B-I-R-S-S, and reserve your limited seat in the webinar on March 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Again, that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash burse, B-I-R-S-S. Now on to the show. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Got a great one for you today, guys. We are interviewing Andrew Coburn, and he is the author of the new book, Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. Sounds pretty badass, huh? Well, it is. So what is the Kill Chain? Well, we're going to get into that in the episode, but essentially what we're talking about here is the fact that through drone warfare and really the new ways that war is being conducted, the face of war has changed. And you no longer are there face-to-face. We're just dropping bombs from the sky. And what that, what that does, you know, what is the chain of command that can tell somebody to do that? What does it do to the pilots who are really playing what seems like video games? As you can imagine, there's all sorts of implications of bringing this type of technology into such an already complicated thing such as war. So I really thought this was timely. I mean, something we all need to be a little bit more educated about. And Andrew really is an expert on this. He is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of many articles and books on national security, including the New York Times editor's choice Rumsfeld and The Threat. He's a regular contributor to the LA Times, and he's written for the New York Times, National Geographic, London Review of Books, etc. So can't wait to turn it over to Andrew. Also, as you heard in the pre-roll, I'm so excited to be bringing the first Smart People Podcast Mastermind. Make sure you sign up because we are going to limit the number of seats. So go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash burse, B-I-R-S-S. And this is kind of to give you a taste of what we are going to do, we have six of these booked already. 
six webinars booked. We are doing the mastermind. It is happening. So sign up, check it out, and then we'll tell you what's coming next. Oh, and Dave wanted me to mention, this is not just a, oh, just sit on a webinar and hang out and maybe get something interesting. He plans to give you real strategies that you can use and work on even during the session to become more creative. So again, that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash burst. Thanks for that. As always, you can get in touch with us at Twitter at smartpeoplepod. We love hearing from you. Now we're going to get on to our show with Andrew Coburn as we discuss his new book, Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. Enjoy. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to have you on and, and talk about a subject that um, extremely relevant and especially people here in America just don't don't understand a lot of what's going on. So first, I just want to say thanks again for being on. Oh, you're welcome. So today we're going to be focusing on your brand new book, Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. Well, first I want to ask, did you choose that title or was that your publisher? I Basically, I chose it. I was stuck. I mean, I thought of Kill Chain a long time ago. That's it. That's really what the book's about. The rise of the whole concept of, you know, a high tech assassination, which is really our principal military strategy these days. Um, that's why it is. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because it definitely grabs you and it's, you know, there's fear in there. But it took me a minute because, OK, I'm thinking Kill Chain kind of get that high tech assassins. I'm like. So many people have this view, I think, of assassinations as, you know, a sniper. It's, it comes from a gun. At least that's how I think of it. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so it's almost a mind bend. And I think that's kind of what you were going for to say, look, um, that doesn't really happen. Now we it's like a video game and we're able to pick people off all around the world. That's right. It's uh, that's exactly what well, video game is is exactly it, because it's really, you know, it's done by video or. We have this incredibly complex and, needless to say, extraordinarily expensive network covering the globe, or most of it, uh, streaming video back all the time. I mean, the, uh, you have these centers around this, around this country. Um, I've actually been in one. They're very hard to get into. They're very highly classified, um, where you have hundreds and hundreds of young men and women sitting looking at video screens, and it's where all the video from all the drones and all the reconnaissance planes and all the satellites and everything else comes in or can, you know, they can, they can look at any of that. And they're, the idea is they fuse the intelligence. They sort of, they can absolutely monitor what's going on, feed in all the intelligence and feed it back out to the drone operators and uh, carry on with the assassination. It's a, a very, very extra sort of science fiction kind of situation. It is. And, and, for people such as myself, unless you think about it from a very, um, you know, nation centric way in America, go, well, this is great. We don't have to spare our our troops. Uh, we don't have to use our troops and we can kill the bad guys and um, technology, man. It's great. But what your book really highlights, and I think anyone who dives in a little deeper or even thinks a little more deeply is the the toll all around on this new ability to kill people silently uh, across the world without ever seeing them. Well, that's right. Um, it's but it's not as great as it sounds. Um, first of all, as you said, the toll you mentioned the toll it takes. I mean, it makes us unbelievably unpopular. <laughs> yeah, even more than you know with bombing by conventional weapons. It seems uh, Stanley McChrystal who. You know, ran the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, and then uh, which is like the military side of this assassination business, and after that was the commander in Afghanistan, as you probably know. Uh, he said, you know, there's no single factor that makes us so as unpopular as drone as this drone these drone campaigns, the mm -hmm. effect it has on people on the ground. So there's that. You know, the, uh, I, I just want to emphasize how traumatic it is for people like. People in in the uh, in uh, the tribal areas of Pakistan, which have been a focus of a you know very intensive CIA drone campaign for years and years now, you know it's a place where children don't play outside on sunny days because they know the drone can see them. Um, people are afraid to go to you know they don't have wedding parties anymore, they don't have funerals anymore. 
because you know they could at any moment a hellfire missile comes streaking out of the sky and you know they're they're incinerated um always you hear uh the you know constant buzzing the buzzing noise of the of the drones you know as they fly ceaselessly overhead so you can but, you can hear the drones oh yeah it sounds like a sort of particularly annoying lawnmower uh i i can't even imagine i uh, cannot imagine knowing that at any moment due to either a mistake or somebody who who we really want dead is is close to you um, at any moment, you could your life could be over due to a bomb. Right. I, I can't. Right. I can't. Sort of out of nowhere. So that's uh, that's one factor. But the other reason, I mean, as you you, you said just a minute ago, why it's appealing because you think you know no Americans get killed. It's all safe and you know clinical, sort of out of sight and out of you know out of earshot certainly to people here. But the basic problem is that it doesn't work so well. I mean, it doesn't get you to where you want to go. I mean, the whole presumption of this assassin, assass, drone assassination campaign. And it's not the, I should, I should talk about in a second, it's not the only kind of assassination campaign we do, um, is that, uh, you know, it's going to get you where you want to be. In other words, that the, you know, the terrorist network that you feel threatened by is going to go away because you're going to have assassinated relevant people in it and uh, your problem will be solved. And that doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It's plain for all to see, you know, um, 9-11, uh, 9-11, uh, that was, you know, planned by this, by Al-Qaeda, but Al-Qaeda at that time consisted of a, you know, a few, at most a few hundred people sort of hiding in caves and whatever in, uh, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, or in the slums of Pakistani cities. Um, now, you know, we have ISIS, you know, that occupies an area the size of Indiana, uh, a million, six, seven million people under its direct control. We have other groups, you know, as lethal, um, you know, spread out across the Middle East. We have, you know, and been further into Asia. I was just hearing about in in Indonesia and in Bangladesh, the same thing as opposed. So the whatever else it's done, our drone assassination campaign hasn't really worked so well. So for all the grief we've caused and all the enemies we've made, it hasn't really got us an advantage. Would it be fair to say, though, that, that that's a little bit of an overstatement that the drone campaign caused that? In, in more so, it was caused by, you could say, the success of 9-11 brought more people to say, hey, we can do oh, something. Oh, to, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, no sure. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's thanks to the drone campaign, ISIS now controls you know, <laughs> half Iraq. So what I'm saying is the drone campaign hasn't was set up you know was launched to solve a problem ah. and the problem has gotten worse it did not solve it yeah that problem has gotten worse I, well and i always think you know i talk to people about this every now and again and if you try to think uh with a little bit of empathy if roles were reversed and a bomb got dropped on your family or anyone you loved and you were you were a uh, you know a citizen just a normal non-terrorist whatever if that were me i'd probably be willing to go to war you know, you just turned me into a soldier. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it, always you know certainly true, and that's it true makes sense. The bomb, but the the sort of the random nature of this is what's particularly insidious. Right. Well, uh, let's let's start from the beginning because one of the things that you do a great job of in your book is talking about how how drone warfare came about and how it's not really a new thing; it's just slightly new technology. So, take us back to the start of, or what you dubbed the start of this. Well, the start of it, I think. Um... You can go back to the number of starting points. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the first drone was actually developed in 1916 uh, for use for use in trench warfare, which, and like it really set some basic themes for drones, which was it was extremely inaccurate. It was quite inaccurate and very unreliable, and crashed all the time. <laughs> uh, anyway, but moving quickly forward, um, I talk early in the book. I talk about a thing which seems unrelated, but really is very connected, which is. During the Vietnam War, the American high command saw as its basic problem the fact that the North Vietnamese could always send reinforcement and was sending all its supplies and reinforcements down this network of jungle trails uh, called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And they, uh, they came to the conclusion that if they could cut that off, if they could make, you know, just intercept all the 
intercept that flow, then the problems would be solved and the war would be won. So the way they decided to do it was to build an electronic fence, which was uh, consisted of thousands of sensors strewn across the jungle, which could both which could pick up sound, could pick up smell, uh, could pick up movement, and each of these sensors would radio back at this information, basically to a giant computer in Thailand, and the computer would figure out, say, oh, from these sounds. From these messages, I'm getting, it's getting um, there's obviously a, a North Vietnamese supply column headed here, and so then automatically send out signals to bombers, which would then bomb it, and you know the North Vietnamese would be destroyed. Well, it didn't work um, for all sorts of reasons, which are jolly interesting, and you'd have to read the people have to read the book to discover yeah. what they were. But the but the basic idea that um, of remote control warfare, which is what this was, that the idea was that you could have perfect information, uh, that you could know where the enemy was and identify him by electronic means, and then you could therefore use that information to strike him with pinpoint accuracy, which was the claim, and destroy him, and thus solve your problem. That's directly related to to drone warfare because it's Mm. the same idea. We have these all these drones flying around, um, which you know they say they which are watching, you know, relaying back videos, so you can find your enemy, you can study him for days, weeks on end, and get his what they call patterns of life. Um, and then when the time comes and you decided that he really is who you think he is, you can launch a missile and you know basically hit him with absolute accuracy. It's the same concept of remote control, sort of almost automated, very mechanistic warfare. And what it doesn't take account of is that the enemy has a brain, which is kind of a cliched statement. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, the military men like to say it, like to declare that, even if they don't usually act on it. And that you know that the enemy reacts. So in the case of the Vietnam, you know, the the electronic fence, um, the enemy quickly figured the Vietnamese quickly figured out what was going on and took steps to spoof the sensors, and they would you know. Um, they would uh, they'd run a herd of cattle up and down the trail to mimic this, which sounded like trucks. So the you know the computer would think, oh, that's trucks, and would send bombers to bomb them, uh, or in a variety of means. The anyway, so they you know, the enemy very quickly figured out what was going on. It took them a week actually, um, and the same way with the drones. You know that they uh, the drones have failed for two reasons, and one of them is that the um, that Al-Qaeda, for instance, in Pakistan, have figured out what was going on. So they take steps not to meet in a public place, not, you know, to camouflage their vehicles, to uh, they've discovered, you know, that the drones, um, for example, you know, there's, well, they found once a very simple set of instructions on how to deal with drones, uh, and which suggestions from various Al-Qaeda commanders, one of which came from Osama bin Laden himself, which said, park under a tree because hmm. the drone can't see you, and the whole variety of things like that. I just want to get on to the other reason why this hasn't worked, uh, is this. It's all, the whole notion of assassination is built on the principle that if you pick off the sort of the key guy, you can identify who the key guy is, thanks to your marvelous, you know, all-knowing electronic intelligence. And once you've done that, then you pick him off, and then the with the with their leader gone, the enemy you know falls apart or is you know defeated or is certainly very much weakened. And it turns out that absolutely the opposite is the case. That every time when you do pick off the leader, and you know this isn't just supposition, this is what has happened. Uh, this is the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan and another conflict I'll talk about in a sec. Um, that he's almost immediately replaced, and the new guy tends to be worse from your point of view. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's um, usually out for revenge. He's usually younger. He's. They tend to be sort of more fierce, you know, sort of more determined fighters. Quite often, it's a relative, so uh, want to, you know, avenge Uncle Ahmed, or else, you know, the previous guy, old, whoever it might have been, old Muhammad. You know, was getting a bit lazy and wasn't really pressing, you know, 
attacks as much as as hard as he should have been. I'm going to show people so the new person's had to prove themselves. And this has turned out to be invariably the case. In fact, I can quote that for the first time in this book, I reveal that the an intelligence, very brilliant intelligence analyst uh, in Iraq, a guy called Rex Ravallo, um, sort of wondered, everyone said, this is the strategy. You know, They called it HVI, high-value individual, or HVT, high-value target. And there was, everything was built around that. Get the high-value individuals, HVIs. And he wondered, well, I wonder if this is actually working. So he... Um, he got it because he had you know, access to all the intelligence. He got the list of 200 people they'd killed or captured sometimes in the previous, I think it was four or five months. This was in 2007. Then he looked to see what had happened in that target's area after he was killed. Um, and, you know, had attacks gone up or, you know, had things got better for the Americans or gotten worse? Well, it turned out they'd gotten significantly worse, that attacks on Americans went up by 40% in three days. Uh, then after five days, they were still up 20%, and then it kind of tailed off after that. Mm-hmm. So this was clear evidence that it wasn't just that killing any enemy leaders, uh, these were you know local insurgent cell leaders, I should say, killing enemy leaders wasn't that it did you any good. It actually made life worse. And I just want to mention the other case of where this has been shown not to work where we've had some further confirmation very recently, which is um, this idea was really had its first run through in the drug war in the 1990s. The the DEA, which up till then had been a kind of a sort of poor stepsister, sort of Cinderella agency, sort of bullied by the FBI and always short of money and so forth. They had a rather capable, ambitious, certainly new director called Bonner, and he, with some others, conceived the idea of the kingpin strategy, that they were going to stop paying so much attention to trying to intercept shipments of cocaine coming into the country. And they were instead going to go after the leaders of the cartels, which in those days was the infamous Colombian cartels of Medellin, Carti- Medellin and Cali. Mm-hmm. So this was going to be the strategy, to get the kingpins. And it was very successful. Um, first of all, they managed to kill the leader of the Medellin cartel, cartel, Pablo Escobar, and then a couple of years later, they captured or killed in some cases or else captured the leaders of the Cali cartel. Well, that was great, but what was that, this had to do with, what did this have to do with the supply of drugs? And it turned out it wasn't <laughs> very, it, it had, a, it boosted the supply of drugs immediately because what happened when you destroy, you take away the leadership of the cartel, then you get people battling for the trade. Mm-hmm. You get rival cartels. You know, the cartel splits, different people wanting to be leader, and they compete, and they compete on supply, so the price comes down. So, you know, we again, actually, it was Rex Ravallo, the same guy, who figured this out because he was, um, he'd been assigned to do some research on this by the, at the Pentagon at the time. And he found that, you know, the price, every time they knocked off a cartel leader, the price of cocaine went down, and you know more people. Therefore, more people could take it. Uh, so this is, and just to finish up on that point, we've seen this recently with the, the you know the capture of Sean Penn's best friend, uh, yes, El Chapo, Mr. Guzman. What do we have now? He controlled the you know the giant Sinaloa cartel. Now I keep hearing that there are smaller, but more vicious cartels springing up. Mm-hmm. We're battling for the trade, so life is actually, you know, and the price of heroin is coming down. Uh, you know, it's so it's um, it's it's really on every count. This is a very stupid strategy, which we show no sign of abandoning, and the, that's you know, a large part of my book is about that. Yeah, it is, and you do talk about how really the uh, you know war is not about engineering, right? And the the yes. folks that that benefit from that in the end are the especially here because this is what we do and i uh, live just outside of dci friends but um it's the contractors that's who it is it's the military contractors who are like oh i mean i just saw that the pentagon's asking for uh a new budget of over half a trillion dollars this year yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can and buy actually, a lot that, of drones. <laughs> and actually, by the time you add it all up, including money, they don't immediately sort of include in that, like the money that goes for the nuclear weapons uh, through the Department of Energy and various other areas too. It's You can actually push it up to close to a trillion if you want. Uh, but yes, drones is going to buy a lot of drones. In fact, they're talking about dr- doubling the drone force um, in a few years. Um, it's the wave of the future. Yeah, there's something you always, I'm glad you brought this up because it's very important to remember that the military industrial complex exists for its own benefit. I mean, defense, an effective defense is kind of a sideline um, or an excuse really to, you know, for us, the taxpayers to give them the money. But time and again, I've, you know, I've been looking at this for decades now and time and time and time again, you see you know, what they're doing, what they want to do is enormously beneficial for them in, you know, bureaucratic and financial terms, both for the contractors and for the, you know, the internal defense bureaucracies, and they're all sort of related to each other, um, and not so good for us. I mean, there's a current example. I don't want to stray too far off the point, but uh, there's a current example in the F-35 fighter, which is the new fighter plane, which is so sort of automated it might as well be a drone. Uh, hmm. uh, you know, the pilot is basically a flying computer. It's very ineffective. Every, every re- honest report, every test report shows that it's a, it's a total clunker. It's a 200, you know, it's, the, the program is going to cost us a half, probably a trillion and a half dollars by the time we're done. To build this one plane? To build the whole program. I mean, but the, this, the, this plane's yeah. program. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Trillion and a half. Um, and and you know, as a, as an instrument of war, it's really not very useful. I mean, it's you know, it's it's you know, I could spout you go on for an hour on this. You know, it it can't fly when there's a twenty a thunderstorm within twenty five miles because the uh, it's uh, they're worried about you know lightning is particularly sensitive to lightning. Um, you know, the pilot if the pilot weighs less than 136 pounds he breaks his and he ejects he breaks his neck um i could you know go on anyway so the thing should obviously be discarded right away but now we're proceeding because it is of enormous benefit to hundreds of corporations led by the lockheed corporation and you know hundreds of congressional districts and uh you know whole fleets of bureaucrats in and out of uniform in the pentagon so anyway that's so that's you know that's why going back to drones and assassination that in my view is why we pursue what is obviously a very flawed you know very dangerous and counterproductive strategy because it suits you know certain imperatives domestically and, and see i mean yes that makes sense but on the flip side and I can't remember, I think a friend told me about this. I can't remember if it was in your book, but it might have been the reason why I found your book. The story about we actually saw, the way drones came about, we saw Osama bin Laden with a drone. Oh, yes. But we didn't have the ability to kill him. Well, let me slightly amend that. Okay, we, thank you. <laughs> we saw what we thought was Osama bin Laden. Okay. Um, there was this drone, the Predator, which initially was uh, it was a reconnaissance it was developed as a reconnaissance vehicle to sort of fly around and take video and which would be uh, either first taken back and then sort of you know immediately radioed back um, of what was going on on the ground and in September two thousand uh, September uh, late two thousand um, they were flying CIA was flying a drone over Afghanistan. And they went over an area, a compound called the Tarnak Farms, I think it was called, where it was thought that Osama sometimes could be found. And when they looked at the pictures, oh, my God, there was a white dot. (laughs) I've actually looked at these pictures. Mm. There's a white dot surrounded by black dots. I mean, they seem to be human. They seem to be moving. Uh, If you blew it up, it just became blurred. So... Mm. And they concluded from this, this had to be Osama bin Laden. And those black dots, and someone, I even heard someone say, well, they seem to be acting in a deferential manner. I don't know what a deferential <laughs> black dot looks like. But anyway, they had to be his bodyguards. Oh, my God, if only we'd had a missile, we could have taken care of the whole problem right now. Um, so they had a crash pr- program to 
put a missile on the drone, which actually they did quite quickly. And we were off to the races. Um, and uh, that, you know, that one picture launched, you know, it's responsible, I'd say, for the deaths of, you know, many thousands of people. Uh, and we still don't know. We, you know, we never had, a, we never knew for sure if it was Osama or not. It mm. could easily not have been because that area, there was a lot of Arab, rich Arabs from the Gulf used to go to that area to go hunting, um, you know, with someone wearing white. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was it. And, uh, you know, we're still killing people on that basis. Well, and and I can understand if we're not able to identify a person. So in that example, um, say we were able to 100% or 99.9%, whatever, say, you know what, that's bin Laden. I think it'd be a hard, it'd be a hard side to, to choose when you say, okay, that might be, but we shouldn't bomb him from this drone. You know what I mean? So understanding all of the issues how do you look at the other side and say, yeah, but at its core, we've created these things that can find bad people and with minimal damage to our own troops, uh, you know, our own people uh, take that that target out. Now, given I understand the, the arguments you made and I'm not taking a stance on it, but how would you defend against that, you know, against that argument? Well, I also I say, what are you trying to achieve? You know, what is the object of this exercise? Is it just to vent your spleen at a, someone who is, you know, unquestionably a bad person, mm-hmm. make you feel better, um, uh, make you, you know, if you're a politician, help you win the next election? Um, if that's what you want to do, well, fine, go proceed. Mm-hmm. If you want to somehow alter a situation in which your, you know, security is affected by you know terrorism these sort of whatever you want to call them these uh, these people who wish you ill um then maybe and you know experience seems to be showing this is not such a great idea mm-hmm. um i think it all comes down to that what you know what do you have in mind you know like that example of the drug war i quoted a minute ago um you know what is the object of the exercise if it turned out you know what the object of their exercise was we don't like these cartels. They're so rich and successful and arrogant. We're going to, you know, destroy them. Well, okay, they succeeded in that. But the object of their their exercise, the DEA's exercise, was meant to be to take care of the drug problem in this country, or at least to right. diminish it. And that had precisely the opposite effect. So, I think I wish they just asked themselves that question more often. Um, you know, they always pose, you know, these very fake things like, you know, the ticking time bomb. This is applies to a different debate, the torture debate, you know, if there's a, uh, you know, they always find an excuse for doing stupid things. <laughs> and now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Listen up. We all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and do it faster. There's no one definitive way to accomplish that. So we devise our own methods to make things work. Igloo can help you keep doing things your way, only better. Collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Igloo provides corporate communications, team collaboration, knowledge management, and social workflow. Head over to their website and check it out today. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. Thank you to the fine folks over at Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode of Smart People Podcast. And now back to the episode. That's interesting because I I do understand what you're saying, especially regarding the drug war. I mean, but I almost look at it and say, if, okay, Osama bin Laden's in charge of 9-11, we can wage an all-out war, get thousands of soldiers killed, or we can fly a drone over there, find them and do it that way. You know, that's the end of Osama bin Laden. I I I feel like maybe the answer is, okay, we use the drones on a smaller scale to take out these high value targets, as you you know, as as we call them HVTs, but we take four hundred billion of the five hundred and put it towards more uh proven or, you know, um whatever methods of quelling terrorism i mean is that a fair i'm not i'm not asking for you to solve it i'm just trying to think of it's really tough to say look these work 
in in the in the goal of taking out somebody easier than they don't work. Yeah. You know? Well, let's 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 move move off the abstract. Uh, in the initially, um, you know, post nine eleven, I think the list of people. Uh, Bush had a list he kept in his desk of people they decided they had to kill. Mm-hmm. I, I, I the, the it was something like twelve names on it. Okay, mm-hmm. it's quite limited. Just twelve people. We've got to get them. They're really, really, really bad people. We have to, we have to eliminate them. Um, but then that became oh my god. Well, there's some other people we didn't know about. So the list became twenty people. And then okay, we got a couple of the top ones, but now there's you know six other people we've discovered, and the list became twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, and eventually ended up in the thousands. Wow! Uh, in the thousands, and that's what always happens in this. I mean, I just want to refer back another historical thing, which is the World War Two. I talk about this in the book. Uh, at the beginning, just before the beginning, of America got into World War Two. The Air Force, or the Army Air Force, as it was called then, had done their war plan for if they had war with Germany. And they figured out that there was 154 targets in Germany, which if they were destroyed, the German war machine would come to a halt and the war would be over and we'd have won. Uh, So they went off, when the war started, they went off and attacked those 154 targets and managed to destroy one or two of them, or more than one or two probably. But then the list became there was you know found there was another hundred and fifty targets they hadn't they hadn't thought of which were equally crucial and then another hundred and fifty and then you know the ones they destroyed had been rebuilt somewhere else or they'd find it just always happens whenever this idea of precision warfare the sort of magic bullet you know it it never works that way uh, I mean so, well I don't want to, in case you think I'm sounding arrogant I just say it hasn't I defy anyone to find an, a a contrary example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I say, you know, that core you mentioned, I mean, two things would happen. One is, you know, they say, okay, we'll get rid of the top guy and we'll spend 400 billion on, you know, improving people's lives. Well, you, first of all, you discover there actually there's 10 top guys you have to get rid of or, and then more. And the 400 billion you'll find is all being, <laughs> is all being you know, siphoned off um, into contractors' pockets. I just want to refer people to the ongoing reports by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, who's been looking into what happened to the $100 billion that we were spending, you know, that we spent ostensibly for the benefit of the Afghan people, the reconstruction money. Yes. And it turns out that, you know, almost all of that was effectively, I don't know, stolen is too strong a word, but diverted or at least used in ineffectual, if not fraudulent ways. So it's, anyway, that's a, an afterthought but um well it's actually it's i mean it may be an afterthought but it's a very important part and it again as we've talked about it it's a lot of what's covered in your book kill chain but it's one of those things that's not really talked about it's not really see it's seen as a necessity um and i know friends who have worked for the government talk about the way in which the government bids you know, uh, does request for proposals and how there's this bidding structure and it's supposed to create a, almost a, you know, free market, if you will. But even if that's the case, it's just the fact that the, the reason these contractors, uh, stay in business is, or, or not the reason, the way they stay in business is to take a massive amount of the resources for just running their organization. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, well, they're just sticking it in their pockets. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to get too far away from Kill Chain, but I mean, the, there's a scandal. I talked to the Mr. Sopko, the Inspector General, about this, where they uh, they found there was some group administered by the Army, by the Department of Defense, which were meant to be improving Afghan business, helping the Afghans to set up, you know, helping the Afghan economy. And it turned out they, you know, they spent most of the, a huge chunk of the money on building themselves a five-star hotel the contractors on the outskirts of Kabul, including, and it's specified in the contract, that the lunch menu in the dining room should have at least three entrees. I remember, anyway, and each room should have a 30-inch TV. It's, it's uh, you know, it's just, it gets, I mean, in the way this relates to what we're talking about, the, what I talk about in the book, which is you know, the, 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 the complex, the military-industrial complex 
and including as applied to drones, you know, what the, the, it'll pursue its own interests rather than those that you think you, that you're paying it to perform, unless you keep a very close eye on it. And that's what happened with, um, you know, I just tell the story of the drone, the company that makes the drones, I mean, the, the killer drones, the Predators and Reapers, that's mm. a company called General Atomics, which is, um, again, it's kind of a complicated story, but I urge people to read it. Uh, and you, it gives you kind of an uncomfortable feeling that these these people are really on the cutting edge of what is our, you know, main strategy for dealing, military strategy for dealing with the outside world. Is there any way, I know, because I know I've, I've read it, it, it is a kind of complicated topic, but could you sum up what happened with with them? Well, it was a pair of brothers called Blue, Neil and Lyndon Blue, who, um, they were a couple of rich kids who, Originally, they decided to get into the nuclear business, and they um, they bought this company, General Atomics, uh, and invested. You threw it, invested in um, basically sort of uranium processing of a particularly environmentally filthy kind of way. I remember around one of their sites, there someone discovered a nine-legged frog. Uh, they uh, they were always getting sued. I mean, they <laughs> left a sort of trail of environmental ruin behind them. Then they wanted. They decided that there should be money in military con- contracts. So they um, they hired an ex navy admiral and set him to work, sort of you know trolling his contacts in the Pentagon. And they came. He came up with an idea for a drone called the Predator, which would deliver be able to deliver small nuclear weapons and. That design never worked and it crashed all the time. But then they found this very eccentric and incredibly bad-tempered Israeli called Abraham Karem, uh, who'd been talking about drones for years and years and years. And he had actually designed what was the sort of prototype of the predator we know and love today. But um, anyway, so they managed through... um, they managed to get a contract from initially the Navy and then the Air Force to build it, thanks basically to a guy called Jerry. Oh, his name's sorry, I'm blanking on it. Oh, that's okay. It was a guy who was named, I think, three or four times in the top twenty lists of the top twenty of the of the in the top in the list of the top twenty most corrupt congressmen in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was a he was the congressman for Santa Barbara, and he basically, you know, in the time honored Washington way, um, in receipt of considerable funds from General Atomics, the contract came to pass, and that really, what really made it all happen was the Kosovo War. If you remember that, mm-hmm. um, and it turned, you know, suddenly we had the Predator, which could send back streaming video and show you what was happening on the battle, battlefield. It couldn't show you very much of what was happening on the battlefield. It could show you like, you know, something the size of a tennis court or two. Mm-hmm. But it was this was very enthralling for the top commanders. I know from a friend of mine who worked in the office of Wesley Clark, who was the supreme Allied commander running the war, that he would spend hours every day sitting at his desk watching. The, the the you know the drone feed on you know on the monitor on his desk. Wow. Um, it wasn't really telling him very much, but it gave him the feeling that he was really in touch with the battlefield. <laughs> it was really exciting. There he was sitting in Belgium, and um, uh, and so it was. You know, this feeds into another aspect which I talk about quite a lot in Kill Chain, which is this false sense of engagement of commu- of, of being in touch that the drones give give to the whole command structure mm. that people the commanders are sitting there like this this clown clark um uh, during that war and they're watching the feed and they're they're like they're suddenly they're acting like sort of platoon commanders you know right. they're directing you know you know attacks on a single tank um which has all sorts of very bad effects on the whole system of running a you know running a battle or running a war um First of all, people on the ground hate it because suddenly you have this, you know, this four-star general, right. you know, sort of telling you what to do when you're you're right there and you can see what to do uh, better than someone sitting five thousand, you know, three thousand miles away uh, watching watching TV. Anyway, that's one effect of it. I, yeah. I anyway, it's worth. <clears throat> sorry, we could go on quite a while, but um, 
that's yet another very key part of the real drone story, which you don't see much, too much about in the papers. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I know we got to uh, wrap this up here, but one of the, the things that really defines your book is the access that you had, the information that you had, the inside track. How how do you do that? How do you get that? Well, I've been, I've been doing this for quite a long time. Um, so you know, and sort of on subjects like this and sort of, um, and, you know, so you do that, you get to, first of all, you know, two things, once you get to know people and sort of, um, people trust you, um, and they tell other people to trust you, which is, you know, I'm very honored by the trust that various people inside the system gave me when working on this. And the others, you get a feel for it. So when someone says, you know, we we have unmatched accuracy or incredible ability to fuse intelligence from must, from multiple sources to tell us exactly what's going on. You know, they're talking you know, BS, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, you get to you know, the, the, then you go and look to see what's really going on. So it's it's you know, it's, it's that. It's just having you know a lot. You know, I mean, I checked everything, but you know, quite a lot of the sort of things I had ideas I had in the book. Uh, that I put in the book, I'd sort of initially suspect, well, that has to be the case. Like, um, uh, oh, like an example I tell of someone who got killed in Afghanistan. They spent, you know, using all the high-tech methods, they, uh, they tracked um, they tracked what they thought was a Taliban commander for days and days and days. And I remember hearing that this guy had been killed, and mm-hmm. I thought, I wonder if they got the right guy. I don't know. I just remember this little stray thought, and turned out it was some completely innocent person. They got they were track they track people through the phones, and they got the phone numbers mixed up. How, uh, how is that story not told more often? I mean, that you know what I mean. Because people, well, people want you know. It's a, first of all, you know, the way defense coverage or coverage of any government institute any institution works is. Most of the time, especially if you're a daily reporter, I mean, I have every sympathy with this. You know, you have to have access. You can't, sure. you can't operate outside the system all the time because you have to be told what's going on. I mean, and unfortunately, people go overboard on this. So, you know, you get a very sort of, in many cases, you get a very tame press corps. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly not, you know, totally. I don't want to go overboard on that, but that's certainly a factor. Um, but people, you know, it's, it's true that, it's, and especially with technology, you know, people... This is a you know society is in love with technology. You know, mm. We have our, all the more and more incredible, miraculous technological gadgets we get to fool with our smartphones and so forth. So, um, when someone makes a technological claim for something, you know that we have a plane that can be invisible to radar now, or we have a robot that can you know figure out friend from foe, uh, all that, that people sort of tend to accept it without thinking, you know, wait a minute, how does that work? I don't, you know, does that really work? How could it work? You know, and uh, uh, which is what they should be doing. But I can see how people fall into that trap. Sure. Unless they read Kill Chain, then they'll know better. <laughs> I was just about to say, well, Andrew, you know, I, I know you got to go. I really appreciate your time. Um, the book is, you know, as of this, uh, the time this airs will be just have come out in paperback. It's Kill Chain, The Rise of the High Tech Assassins. We'll link to it on smartpeoplepodcast.com. And I wanted to say, if anything, you know, to read this book to be um, educated and look at it without bias, you know, I think you you would admit that you might ins- have inserted a little bit of bias uh, of your own way in this, in that, you know, saying there's really no use for this. But don't you think it kind of puts some light on the subject in a way that, Oftentimes, we only see the other side. Well, that's right. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, sure, I have my own, you know, I have my own views. I don't have bias. Everyone, you know, no yeah. one is unbiased. Right, Everyone true. Has their own views to things. Um, so, sure, I have my own views. And I mean, I, I will concede that I have had, uh, you know, particularly military, lower ranking military office people who've been in the field. In, in Afghanistan and places, say, well, sometimes it's useful. Then in the next breath, they tell me why. They tell me some disaster story where right. they're killing the wrong guy or something. But yeah, of course, there's always things. But I, I think, um, I don't know. I think, I think, I think my book. I, you know, I'd like to think my book is, you know, is fair, um, which is the important thing. Is um, you know, takes an objective look 
I mean, usually people say you're biased when they just don't agree with you. So uh, ah, I like that. <laughs> I'm going to quote that. No, but Fair but enough. but I, you know, like I said, I've read it. Um, really enlightening, fantastic stories. You cram a ton of information in a in a way that to the layman is understandable and exciting um, and educational. So. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anywhere else that you write or anything else you want to let the listeners know about or where to find sure. you? Sure. I, I, um, I glory in the title of uh, Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, mm. um, which basically means I do a – you'll find every three months um, you find a long article from me in Harper's about whatever, <laughs> whatever happens to be interesting <laughs> me at the time, uh, not necessarily to do with Washington. Uh which now um, you can find if you go to harpers dot org. You can and just type in my name, Andrew C O C K B U R N. You'll get my. You can get access my pieces. I do shorter pieces for their online for their um, for their online edition. Um, yeah, so that's my main. Uh, that's my day job these days. And uh, you're on Twitter. I think that's how we got in touch, right? And that is indeed how I'm on on Twitter, where I can. Uh, Vent my inventing my spleen on whatever, <laughs> and, <laughs> whatever and was annoying me that day. What's your Twitter handle for everybody? Andrew M. Coburn, A N D R E M. Andrew M. Then C O C K B U R N. Perfect. Again, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I will be sure to, to uh, shoot you a link via email when this goes live uh, around just after March 8th. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Andrew Coburn. Andrew's book, Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins, can be found on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you decide to purchase the book through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher. Leave a rating, review, and comment over there. It truly does help out the show. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. As Chris mentioned in the intro, we're going to have more information coming out about the Smart People Podcast Mastermind, so stay tuned for that. We've got some great episodes coming up, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.